Well, it is great to see all of you, even if you can't see me very well this morning. And um, if you're wondering if we were sort of going for like a depressing, dark, um, serious Lenten vibe, given the you know Seven Deadly Sins series, I, I wish we could say that it's just a breaker is out, and so the stage lights aren't working today. But we might keep this going through Lent. Um, before we dive in and, and just following up on uh, Will's uh, prayer. Um, and I know that you all are, are so eager to get into the seven deadly sins, but just to mention briefly and reflect on what has been happening the last few weeks in uh, the chapel at Asbury University. What started with a simple weekly chapel service, they had chapel every week, um, but when the service was over, it's like nobody left. <laughs> And the students just kept on praying and worshiping, and then more students came, and pretty soon people from all over the country and then from all over the world were flooding into this small town in Kentucky. And honestly, I can sometimes be a little bit skeptical about things like this, but something is happening, and not just in Asbury now, but spreading into other college campuses and other communities and gatherings of the next generation that I cannot explain away. And someday, generations after us, people might read about what happened at the Asbury Revival in 2023. One of the key marks of this outpouring of God's presence, or any revival for that matter, is a unifying spirit of repentance. This willingness to, to come to terms with our need, our desperation for Jesus. And, and, and people are left and right are, are finding freedom through doing that together in this revival. Uh, one story, and I know there are so many, but this one was uh, real powerful. One of the leaders there was a pretty gifted, pretty well-known musician named Mark. And uh, last week, Mark had offered to uh, step in when there was a gap in the time of worship, the, the music leading in the chapel. Well, the student that was in charge of worship uh, didn't know who Mark was, didn't know his reputation. So when Mark started leading the music, the student came up onto the stage and interrupted Mark in the middle of a worship set about 20 mi minutes in, and he asked him to stop playing. And Mark asked why, and the student said, I'm just sensing that your heart isn't right. And so Mark put down his guitar without objecting, and he left the stage, and he went um, into a back room for prayer and asked somebody to pray for the state of his heart. And um, a little later, the student actually came up to apologize to him. It, it figured, like, I had no idea who you were. I'm so sorry that I told you to get off the stage. And Mark said to him, no, you were right. And there was something that I needed to confess, something that I needed to bring from my heart before God, and I'm so thankful that you called me out on that. Okay, that's leadership. This willingness to be humbled, to confess our sins, not to be defensive, but receptive and open to what God might be doing. And, and I want us to ask for more of that. To ask God to do more of that here. So please pray. Pray for more of God's outpouring on his people. Pray that it would happen here. God can do that here in our midst. Pray for SMU, that God would move on that campus. This is happening, this awakening to, to the things of God. It's happening in, in Generation Z, the youngest generation. They are leading the way. And that is often the case when God moves in this new way and does a new thing in our midst. So can we just pause and pray for a moment? God, would we long, what we long for more than anything else, more than revival, 
Um, we long for Jesus, more of you, Jesus. And we ask that you would stir and wake us up and convict and comfort and heal and draw us closer to you. Would you do that even in this space, in this sacred sanctuary right now as we open up your word? We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, we're talking about the seven deadly sins. Excitement abounds. And just a heads up to parents, if you didn't see the weekly email or Teresa's message this morning, uh, there might be a little bit of content that could be more sensitive to younger ears, so you are always welcome to uh, take your kids to our children's environment, or if you feel that it's best for them to be here for for this, um, you are welcome to do that too. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you want to grab that church Bible there in front of you, Matthew 5, it's page 1029. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful and the pure in heart. This is how Jesus launches into his most famous of sermons. But then, as soon as he's done with this litany of blessings, Jesus turns this corner and he says, okay, now I'm going to get in your business. Let's talk about murder. Let's talk about sex. And the crowd, as they're listening, I can, you just imagine like they're, you know, sort of awkwardly fidgeting. Maybe they're looking for the nearest exit. Just to clarify, we have two in the back, four up here in the front. But they're wondering like, Jesus, this wasn't supposed to be that kind of talk, right? Um, and I know that's hard to imagine that 2,000 years ago, people were just as squeamish and uncomfortable when the preacher talked about sex as they are today, right? Ixnay on the exay, Jesus. Now, before we look at what Jesus has to say about lust... Before the scriptures say anything about lust, the story of creation is of the supreme gift of our sexuality. In Genesis 1 and 2, we're given this picture of God's good and beautiful and perfect creation. And part of this is expressed in the naked and unashamed love that Adam and Eve, man and woman, share with each other. Free from body shaming, free from comparison, free from objectification, perfect intimacy. But then the enemy, the serpent, comes along and seduces them with lies into turning away from God. And the result is one of the most tragic lines in the entire Bible. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. See, prior to the fall, you have to understand, Adam and Eve didn't live blind to each other's bodies. They saw each other, but they looked upon each other with sacred eyes. They were exposed, they were naked, but but they weren't ashamed. But as soon as sin enters the picture, sin distorts their vision, ironically, by opening their eyes. Prior to this moment, they saw with the pure eyes of God, and now they see through the blurred vision of shame. The writer Rich Velotis points out that their eyes being opened back in Genesis 3 is like the anti-miracle of the New Testament, right? Throughout the Gospels, Jesus often is opening blind eyes, helping people to see physically as well as spiritually. But in this tragic moment in Genesis 3, the way sin opens their eyes paradoxically cuts off the deeper vision with which we were meant to see, to truly see each other. But now there's shame and there's warped desire. And from this point on, the human experience is marked more by using than by communing. So, 
How do we redeem what God created to be good and beautiful and sacred and holy? Here's what uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, and we'll start with verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Sex, hell, tearing off body parts. Like, where are you going with this, Jesus? Well, first thing, let me just say that Jesus never meant for us to take this literally. I mean, think about that. If you do exactly what he says here and you pluck out one of your eyes, you still have another eye with which to lust. Right? Clearly, Jesus is going after something deeper, something more true and more significant. You have heard it was said. That's how Jesus begins. He says to this crowd, you guys know the Ten Commandments. You've heard it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But here's what I tell you. Anyone who looks with lustful intent. Now, the tense of that verb, to look with lustful intent, um, is kind of a tell here. It's a participle. And what's a participle? It's an I-N-G verb, lusting, looking, leering in a long, sustained way. It's not, just a, a, it's not just a fleeting glance. It's when in my heart and mind, I exert control over someone for my selfish end, when I turn one of God's children into an object for my own selfish pleasure. That's what Jesus wants to talk about. It's not about cutting off your hands and plucking out your eyes. It's about the heart. And here's the brilliance of what Jesus does. He goes beyond the physical act of adultery, and he says it is way bigger than that. This is about taking a God-designed sacred gift and twisting it into something destructive. And I'm guessing there's not a person in this room who hasn't known some version of the struggle or the pain or the regret or the shame of past mistakes in this area. So who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to you and me. And here's what lust does. Like all the seven deadly sins, what does lust do? It lies to us. Lust is a liar. And I want to talk about three of those lies, three lies that lust tells us. And the first lie is this. Lust says, I must. It whispers into my ear, I have no choice I'm powerless to resist this. It's just, it's a part of who I am. It's just part of being human. I have to quench that desire. Lust lies to you and says, you must have this. And if you don't, you will always be chasing it and you will never be satisfied and fulfilled. So let me say this as simply as I can. And this is not remotely profound. You don't have to look. You don't have to look. This is not the law of gravity. We can learn with God's help and the accountability and encouragement of others, we can learn to govern lust. We can actually learn to do this. That's one of the reasons why we talk so much about finding a smaller community here, a community group, or uh, being part of our men's group ascent, or celebrate recovery, where, where you can be surrounded by trusted friends who can speak truth into your life, and they can help you to confront this and invite God to be part of your finding freedom. 
a little aside, and this is especially for the guys in the room, be aware of your eyes. And I want to take kind of a serious tone with this because there's a, there's a lot of humor in our day that has sort of numbed us to the danger of the look. And if you think you're the only one who ever notices when you look, think again. St. Augustine, um, 1,600 years ago, I want you to see what he wrote in case we were thinking this was like a new phenomenon. This is St. Augustine around the year 400 AD. And whoever fixes his gaze upon a woman and likes to have hers fixed upon him must not suppose that others do not see what he is doing. He is very much seen, even by those he thinks do not see him. But suppose all this escapes the notice of man, what will he do about God who sees from on high and from whom nothing is hidden? So be aware of your eyes. And this can be for women as well as men. Maybe the look takes on a different meaning. For some of us, maybe it happens or is sparked by a conversation or it is a friendship that starts to sort of move into an area of emotional connectedness. You can choose with God's help to say no to that. Because when it comes to the dangers of lust, there are no 50 shades of gray. This is why Jesus uses such jarring, shocking language here. Because we know where that road can lead. Untold shame, dangerous addictions, wrecked families and marriages. It will always promise you freedom and it will only leave you enslaved. So the first lie is this. Lust says, I must. And then second lie, lust says, don't trust. Don't trust God to satisfy your deepest desires. This lie that God is this distant, buzz-killing judge who only wants to make your life miserable by telling you what you cannot do. And that is a lie that the enemy will tell you over and over again because he knows that we are more vulnerable to lust when we lose trust in the goodness of God. It's when we stop trusting that God is is a loving father and he's not trying to withhold things from us or to keep them from us. He longs for us to experience and know his joy and pleasure and deep fulfillment. When we begin to buy into this lie that God can't be trusted to meet our deepest longings, we will always turn toward lesser desires to try and fill that void. These are words that I want to share with you from Dallas Willard, and I think I've shared these before, and they have meant so much to me. He says, failure to attain a deeply satisfying life always has the effect of making sinful actions seem good. Lust lies to you, and it says, don't Don't trust that God is a God who blesses, who fulfills, who loves and satisfies the deepest longings of your heart. So, three lies. First lie, I must. Second lie, don't trust. And then lust says, ignore the unjust. Ignore the unjust nature of lust. Because when you peel back the layers, lust is really at its core an act of injustice. It is taking something sacred, a body, a temple of God's spirit, a woman, a wife, someone's child, and it distorts and twists that person into an object of desire that you use to gain this little surge of gratification. It is dehumanizing. It's stripping another person of their God-given dignity. And the Bible calls that injustice. Again, the enemy doesn't want, you, doesn't want you to connect these dots. Because when you start opening your eyes to see lust through this lens of injustice, it'll, it'll start to change your heart, and it'll break your heart. 
when you open your eyes to the work of organizations like International Justice Mission and so many others who are helping to rescue innocent teenagers and children from forced exploitation around the world, fighting this, the injustice of a $150 billion a year global industry that is alive and well, 50 million slaves in our world today, including right here in Dallas. And when you begin to hear stories and see images of girls and boys who've been set free from a dark little room where their dignity has been stolen and now they're safe and now they're free and now they're receiving the truth about them that they are God's precious child, when you let that start to sink in, it will wake you up and it will change your heart and it might give you pause before you pull out that phone and you go down that dark, searching path for another fix. You're shifting the lens. Lust, lust isn't your harmless little secret anymore. It's an act of injustice. And I wonder if this is why Jesus talks about hell in this passage. And hell not just as a place that you know, bad people go when they die, but a present reality of life without God. It's a place where total injustice reigns. That's why we sometimes, when we see images of something so destructive and so evil in our world, oftentimes we'll use this phrase, we'll say it's like a, it's like a living hell. I remember when I lived in Vancouver, and um, if you've ever been to Vancouver, it is a stunningly beautiful city. Like, there's nothing like the mountains coming right out of the ocean. It's just a stunning place. And one day, I remember walking through downtown and into the red light district in Vancouver, and just the contrast of this breathtaking city, and then right here in the middle of it all is this place of total darkness, lives just wrecked by lust. It was like a living hell on earth. Lust will lie to you and say, you just, just ignore all that. Try not to think about it. It lies. It promises happiness, but it leaves you feeling hollow. It promises satisfaction and just leaves you wanting more. It promises intimacy, but leaves you feeling alone. It promises freedom, and it just makes you a slave. And in the end, lust delivers the exact opposite of what it promises. As Frederick Buechner said, lust is the craving for salt of a man dying of thirst. It takes this beautiful gift from God and twists it and leaves us isolated, empty, and more and more in our day, even addicted. There's a Stanford psychologist by the name of Philip Zimbardo, and a few years ago he wrote a rather, a not uncontroversial book called The Demise of Guys. After 40 years of research, what they found um, is that adolescent boys are shyer than ever. And they write about this. It's a new kind of shyness. It's a social awkwardness, especially when um, dealing with girls. And he says it's kind of like being in a foreign country where you don't know the language. Like, that's boys in our day. They don't know the language of social connection. And it's haunting. He says the next generation is getting trapped in a present hedonistic time zone with no sense of the future, caused in large part by addiction arousal. Some of the research, <clears throat> by the time the average American boy turns 21, he will have played 10,000 hours of video games, okay? That's two bachelor's degrees worth of time. And don't get me wrong, I love playing video, I love playing Madden with Wheeler or NBA 2K, especially now that Kyrie and Luca are teamed up. Like, so what's the problem with video games? The problem is what these boys aren't doing when they're locked into the screen, 
They're not learning how to build relationships. And so here's what Zimbardo says. A generation of boys are being digitally rewired in a totally new way that demands constant stimulation, which you can kind of begin to see where this leads. It often moves in the direction of porn and other empty forms of sexual intimacy. So it's kind of heavy, and it needs to be talked about now and then. But I want to turn the corner here now into the good news part of this, because the goal is not just to like, avoid the bad stuff. That's never been Jesus' vision for, for our life. So, a little takeaway. You don't conquer lust solely by running from sinful desires, but by running towards sacred ones. Jesus' approach to love and relationships is not just, I need you to keep it between the navigational beacons and don't blow it. No. It's about having joy-filled, rich relationships, fulfilling friendships, a thriving marriage. It's about honoring the people that you date, redemptive dating, which sounds so foreign, right? So here's the thing, whether you're single or married or maybe thinking about marriage down the road, what would it look like for God's grace, his blessing and love to permeate our relationships and our marriages? And I wonder what would happen if instead of our obsessing about what's wrong in the world out there and lamenting the demise of the institution of marriage, what might happen if as a church of Jesus followers, we were to double down and make it our mission to having holy, healthy, life-giving, God seeking Christ-centered marriages, and for that matter, becoming a community marked by relationships of all kinds, of mutual self-giving, honoring of one another as image bearers of God, lived under the grace of God, radiating the love of God, that we might bless a generation of marriages that, that, that will believe and grow to believe that their highest calling is not to be happy, but to be holy, to be set apart, to bless and heal and redeem, not just this place, not just our lives, but our city and beyond. And I wonder if that might communicate something about the sacredness and the sanctity of marriage. So here's what I want to do before we pray. And we're going to have a time. We've kind of saved confession for after the sermon. But before that, first, for those of you who are single, and then a word for the married folks. Just briefly on singleness. I believe the church in our day, and I have, I've kind of contributed to this, we have a deficient theology of singleness. Jesus was single, and he lived the fullest human life imaginable. Somewhere along the way, we forgot that chastity and singleness is a serious option for followers of Jesus, and there's a lot more that needs to be said about that, but as a church, we need to make room for and celebrate those brothers and sisters of ours who feel called to a life of chastity and singleness. That can be a rich, fulfilling, and beautiful way to live. Now, with that said, um, for those of you who are not married, but maybe in the dating world, uh, it can be tempting to spend a lot of time thinking about the kind of person you want to marry, right? How important it is to find the one. And that's not a bad thing, but some of you may be frustrated because you haven't yet met or found the one, and that's Christian speak for the one that God is, you know, um, the person that God has, ha has called you to. So here's the challenge for you, and it's real simple. What if you were to pray every day and maybe kind of shift your prayer life to not just that God would lead you to the one or introduce you to the one, but that God would be shaping you into the kind of person who is ready for the one? 
And what if your prayer was, God, help me to be the kind of woman who is ready for that kind of man, that kind of marriage? in my choices, in my thought life, in how I respond to the lies of lust. God, shape me into the kind of man that is ready for a Jesus-centered marriage. And would you commit yourself to praying in that direction? Then a word for married couples. And maybe you can make this a practice through these 40 days of Lent, that you would pray together every day. That you'd pray together every day. Sometimes these stats are thrown around that half of all marriages end up in divorce, and sometimes people say there's no difference in the church. Well, there was a big study that was done a few years ago by the National Marriage Project, which is out of the University of Virginia, and they found that of couples who pray together daily, every day, less than 1% end up in divorce. And I know there's, so, there's all kinds of ways to slice and dice research like this, but I'll, I'll take anything close to those odds over 50-50. Now, it doesn't have to be profound. It doesn't have to be this, you know, crazy, intense, drawn-out, levitational prayer experience. Maybe it's a little bit more than the bar of dinner, the dinner blessing. God is good. God is great. Thank you for the food we ate. Like, that doesn't really count. That's not what we're talking about here. But this is just about even for a few moments, the honest connecting of two souls before God. And so what if you were to practice this through Lent and just try this for 40 days? This week as I was prepping for this message, um, I realized that Allie and I used to have a pretty good rhythm of praying together on a regular basis a lot more consistently than we do today. And, you know, whether that's the kid effect or the busyness or just whatever, this is not about guilt but this week we kind of came together and we said, what if like for Lent we were to commit to getting back into this rhythm together every day? Like, let's get back to this, just praying together. One of the ways that we used to do this um, is when we went on walks. And just something about walking together, we had this margin to ask the question, how can I be praying for you? How can I pray for you? And this is, this is so embarrassing, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell it. When we first got married, um, I was not a big fan of going on walks. It just was not efficient as a use of time. And Allie would often ask me um, when we both got home from work, didn't have kids yet, hey, do you want to go for a walk? And what I would, this is what I would often do. Again, I'm embarrassed about this, but I'd get my running shoes on and my walking gear, and we would start out on the walk, but then after a few minutes, I would just take off on a run. And I'd be like, hey, I'll meet you back at the house and it'll be great. Like it's a win-win, right? Because I thought the walk was about exercise. And finally, Allie just had to spell it out. And she said, Bri, it's not about the walk, okay? I want to connect with you. Message received. So a few days later, um, we... <laughs> We went on this long walk, and we got to catch up. It was our favorite route, and we were just asking good questions, and we got around to the question, how can, I, how can we pray for each other? And we were able to pray for each other. And afterwards, um, we came back home, and we walked into the house, and Allie said to me, Brian, I'm kind of feeling emotionally connected to you right now. And I was getting this sort of affectionate vibe that I could sense from her after the walk. And and it's like my brain just started to register, there's something about the walk. <laughs> so I started asking Allie all the time, hey, you want to go on a walk? It was like three times a day. Let's just keep walking. But here's why this is so powerful. 
It is harder to be resentful and to stew in anger and to grow that gap with someone that you're praying with on a regular basis. It's harder to get stuck in the passive-aggressive cul-de-sac. You know those fights where you say things like, honey, I'm so sorry that you're mad. Which, to be clear, is not an apology. That's not a valid apology. Prayer creates this intimacy. It's vulnerable. As husband and wife, it draws you near to one another, which is always a more beautiful and truer form of intimacy than the counterfeit lies that lust wants us to believe. You'll find over time that you have a softer, more forgiving, more open and grace-filled heart towards your spouse. And grace is the most powerful force in a relationship. And that needs to be the last word, grace. Because sometimes there's this tone of condemnation when it when we get to talking about this sort of topic and people who maybe have made decisions or gone down roads of lust and making mistakes and things they wish they could take back, no, not in here. There is always grace. Nobody's ever beyond redemption. One of the things that so infuriated the religious people of his day about Jesus was how he showed grace toward people with a sexual past. A woman caught in adultery, a Samaritan who'd been married five times, a prodigal who went off and wasted his life away in wild living. And the one who gave his life on the cross is the one who extends his arms and is always saying to you and me, come home, welcome home. There's grace for you. Come home. And this is the God that we come before in prayer. So can I ask you, would you just bow your heads as we pray? Father, so many in this room have been affected by this issue we've talked about today. And we're thankful, Jesus, that you didn't just gloss over the hard stuff. And God, whatever shame there might be in our story, we bring that to you. Jesus, we bring it before your cross. And maybe just take a moment for every one of us to be silent before God. Maybe for you, this could be a moment of confession, just being honest with God about your life, your past. Maybe something you need to bring into the light so God can heal you and set you free. And now if you want to make these words your own, just pray with me. Lord Jesus, I present myself to you to be made whole and holy in every way. You ask us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, and I do this now. I surrender my body my desires, my longings, my failures, all of it to you. And God, thank you for your complete and total forgiveness that because of the cross, there is no condemnation, no shame, just freedom to experience the fullness of your love. Amen.